listening to the Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and their guests cut through the clutter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail. Hello, Retail Razor listeners. Welcome to the Season 1 Grand Finale episode. As you can tell, I'm not one of your usual hosts. I'm Lisa Amlani, Principal and Co-Founder of Retail Strategy Group and the Merchant Life Newsletter. And I am your guest host today, where I'll be turning the tables on your usual hosts and interviewing them. So let's bring them in. Ricardo Belmar and Casey Golden. Casey and Ricardo, thank you so much for having me guest host today. Hey, Lisa, it's awesome to have you here. So amazing to have you off of Twitter for a moment on the podcast. Of course. <laughs> we're, we're, changing, we're changing it up of a little course. bit. <laughs> so how does it feel being on the other side of the mic today? It's a little different. Somehow it doesn't feel like being a guest on somebody else's podcast. So it's a little bit strange, but this was one of our most popular topics. So that's let's true. See how it yeah, goes. that's true. I mean, I, I kind of say the same thing. It's a little a little weird not being the one asking the questions like we usually do on, on the show. But this will be fun. This will be something different. And you're totally right. It's, it doesn't feel the same as being a guest on somebody else's podcast. So uh, this will be an interesting one this time around. Well, I'm excited to get you guys in the hot seat. So Let's dive in. First, I'm going to run through the top 10 predictions you guys made in episode four, and we'll consider this a mid-year check-in. And just because I want to keep you guys on your toes, because you know that's how I roll, I'm going to keep score on whose predictions are performing better. <laughs> Nothing like a little competition to mix things up. Well, this could get ugly then. Casey's so super competitive. It's a good thing we're all remote and there's no risks of things being thrown around the room. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, maybe not your room. <laughs> Uh, I think it's pretty obvious who's going to have the have the better record. But there's a reason, you know, Ricardo and I are on here. I mean, I think we had a few times where we're like, no, you have to change it because you can't have everything the same. <laughs> well, this is definitely going to be better we'll than we'll I expected. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so let's not get ahead of ourselves. And the second part, I'm also going to ask you both what your favorite parts of the season were and a few other surprise questions about the season. So let's get started with the season one finale. Okay, the first prediction was about retail media networks. Ricardo, let's start with you. Well, I think this one's definitely a winner because let's see, since we did episode four, there must be at least, I don't know, like another 50 retail media networks that have been <laughs> announced by retailers this year. I don't know, ranging from what, like Alta Beauty hadn't been announced when we recorded that. That's the one that everybody wanted to talk about. I, I mean, just about everybody that's either a, a big box retailer. I mean, a bunch of specialty ones that maybe we wouldn't have expected. I think this one's just continuing to grow. So I'm thinking I'm good on that one. Okay. Casey, let's talk about brick expansions. I love this one because, you know, I'm a big fan of physical retail. Yeah. And I kind of focus on digital these days. So it's kind of nice to pop into bricks every once in a while. It's where we all started, right? There yep. was barely an internet. <laughs> I'm not saying that anybody's old here, but you know, there wasn't very many farmers in the beginning. So the passion started on the floor. It's been interesting with Amazon's new, they're still kind of expanding on the, these in stores, reimagining the shopping and buying experience. I've actually seen a lot more traction in that, you know, with all of these tech enabled spaces and a lot more experimenting. So, I mean, I think we kind of nailed that this is really going to be a tech enabled opportunity for a lot of bricks and changing the traditional big box for more entertaining showrooms. Kind of tagged Glossier as the winner. There's been a lot of changes over there too. So there's a lot of opportunity here for somebody, for a whole group of people to really win on bricks. 
Definitely. I also just placed a Glossier order yesterday. Social commerce and live streaming. Ricardo. Oh, this is definitely one of my favorite topics still, maybe second only the retail media networks. I think it's still growing, right? I guess one of the big things in the prediction I talked about was this idea that retailers would start relying more on their store associates as the live streamers, as the way of really promoting the whole idea of, of live shopping that way. And I think overall, this one's still building momentum and, and gaining steam. All the social media networks are certainly still putting out more features. What Twitter added a uh, new shopping capabilities, which maybe we wouldn't have expected Twitter to do. In episode 12, we even talked about Pinterest and, and their new capabilities. So I think there's a lot happening there. And if anything maybe hasn't come true yet, but I'm going to still hold out hope here for later in the year is when we start seeing more frontline store associates doing the live streams. And maybe that's picking up steam, I think, in more of a, a one-to-one kind of shopping experience versus a one-to-many. But I still think that we're going to see that. I just think it's a natural extension. And we might see it first coming from smaller retailers, I, I think, because it's easier for them to be more nimble with that and get somebody recording and going live, whereas big retailers are just naturally have this motion where they're going to want to go big and have big production values and bring in lots of equipment. And that's going to slow them down a bit. But I think we'll still see it happen. Yeah, I think so. Too. Yeah, I mean, I really I put a lot of emphasis on TikTok commerce because I've been watching that beta program. Since yeah, yeah. In Asia. And then pulling out of the U.S. and Europe last week, that announcement, I think it's going to probably be better for smaller brands than the big ones because TikTok would have been that commerce channel. So who's to know? Yeah, I think there's still plenty of startups coming up, too, that I, I see focusing on, on live streaming. So if I was going to add something, it would be how things turn out between the big social media platforms versus these dedicated live stream platforms that are mostly driven by startups and how retailers are going to adopt one versus the other. And, and maybe we'll see them do both because it just kind of makes sense to have one off your own website and not totally rely on you know a Facebook channel. Oh, for sure. When we were at the retail innovation show, there were, I think CoreSight had partnered with a live streaming platform, which was super interesting, but I feel like they weren't retailers. So it'd be interesting to see when retailers actually merge with live streamers and partner together to, to have the best customer experience. Casey, personal shopping. I love this one. Well, I'm obviously I'm biased. <laughs> of so course. brownie points here. Customer expectations. I mean, I thought that they were high during the pandemic. They're almost unachievable at the moment. Shoppers are no longer content with that simple transactional purchase outside of like commodity goods. And we, we saw a lot of innovation with the associate lid shopping and it went big, but I think that there's like a lot of rebuilds when it comes down to the tech on actually operationalizing and really bringing that in-store experience online and working with customers remotely. We've seen a lot of team, a lot of brands building out specific dedicated frontline staff teams, but putting them online and building virtual teams to really have, you know, that trusted product expert or that sales associate being able to just help them shop. And, and build that relationship. I'm gonna, still betting that we're going to see a lot more of it. I think so, so much too. opportunity with like, yeah, I mean, we have to alleviate all of the mundane tasks that these sales associates have to deal with in order to manage these customers and make sure that they don't lose their jobs. The sheer volume of online traffic and then trying to provide a personal shopping experience. I think everybody said that it was this personal shopping shop with a stylist. It's going into clienteling and that's going to be new platforms. It's working. 
So I think it's it's really exciting to see the brands put this talent at the forefront of the narrative and start giving them software. I love that you brought up clienteling because I started on the shop floor and I definitely had a book that I used to, you know, bring to to Harrods. That's where I worked in one of my one of my store roles. And that book went everywhere with me. And that was my clienteling software. It was manual pen and paper. And technology would definitely change the game. Ricardo, let's talk about the shopper experience. Yeah, I think you know, it, technology and in-store experience, I mean, they're continuing down that march to converge and bring in more and more things into the store. We've got this year more examples of computer vision and AI. You know, just look at Amazon's new style store and what they're doing there. Some people like it, some not so much, but I think the, the point is we're seeing more and more experiments and more and more attempts to try things out. I think I mentioned when we first talked about this, we, we talked a little more about where were AR and VR platform is going to play in-store. I don't think we've seen as much with that, although, I mean, I think there's more AR things happening. I'm, I'm seeing more and more things happening around trying to improve fit in apparel. It's always a challenge there. But to me, this is all about finding more and more technology in the store, but not in the way of the shopping experience, which makes it so much of a better experience. And that we have people wanting to do more shopping in store. Right now, we've gotten past this idea that online was just going to totally shut down physical experiences. And, and we're seeing that we're back to back to the norm there for the most part. I think we'll just see more and more cashierless checkout, more shelf scanning types of uh, technologies, whether it's robots or IoT sensors, we're going to see more and more scan and go. So I think this one's moving along, maybe not as fast as I, I would have expected at the beginning of the year when we talked about it. But that to me has more to do with retailers wanting to be cautious about some of these investments versus desire to do them at all. So I think it's all still happening. Casey, buy now, pay later. Oh, it gets hotter than the bubble bursts. I'm a big believer in don't spend more than you have. But, you know, regulators are there. They're coming. I read all the regulators. All I hear is Warren G. I love it. <laughs> now I have Warren G in my head. Good time. Um, I know, right? We should all have Warren G in our head. <laughs> good times. Good times. I think one day we'll look back at buy now, pay later and say good times. It's It's been a... They've been getting a lot of traction, making purchases, lack consumer projections, and and they can really make hassle-free returns. 30% APR with just crazy, crazy APR rates. There's easier ways to block out these payments, and they've been productive for all the brands. I mean, I don't know if you can find a website that doesn't offer buy now, pay later. But I also think it's a very American thing. We are like, we rented the credit card. <laughs> Say no more. So whether or not it's consumer, <laughs> right? So whether or not it's good for the consumer, it's been really good for businesses. But I think that there's going to be a little bit more regulation and consumer protections on it to really make sure that when you make a purchase for $300, it's not going to cost you three grand because there's been some, some, some more predatory behavior in this space. But Klarna has really stepped up their game and providing really interesting product discovery in their app, rewards programs. And, you know, they recently just bought Hero, which was a personal shopping app. So they're offering, you know, just looking at the customer journey from start to finish and, you know, trying to set themselves up to be more than just a payment system, or at least feel like it, right? Yeah. So I think the competition's gonna get tough here and they're gonna have to be more interesting to 
branch out from the regulation. Acquired or merge or combine. I mean, something's going to happen. I don't think it's going to keep on this growth path. Ricardo, I'm really interested on your thoughts on that too. Oh, I mean, on on buy now, pay later, you pretty much had me at regulators. (laughs) And I've used it once as an experiment. Just like, well, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean. I think the very first thing we said back in, in that episode on that one, right? The, the it gets hotter and then the bubble bursts. I think we're we're just about at that point, in, in my opinion. I mean, there is more and more folks looking at just what you said, right? The predatory terms, the insane APRs, and it's on a path to have an impact, right? To put people into more and more debt when they don't need to be. So I I don't know. I I just I think it's interesting that we see the BNPL companies trying to add more services to their offering that's not part of the core idea, right, of buy now, pay later, so that their business isn't totally dependent on it. And I don't know, in some ways, this is one of these things where it, it was a huge bubble, but at the end of the day, I mean, how hard is it to replicate buy now, pay later functionality for your payments company? So where's the differentiator for all these guys to stay in business? I think the bubble has to burst. And when we think about, Ricardo, this is one for you, the analytics, AI, and machine learning, and sceneability, and traceability, and merchandising returns, and predictive analytics, all the stuff that I love to talk about from a merchant perspective. Let's talk about your prediction around this. So in, in that one, I saw that we're just going to, so, so much more automation, a lot of this technology being used to remove all the mundane and tedious tasks that store employees have to deal with. And, and there are so many new tools coming out with that. I, I've, I've been working with a number of different companies now who have new technologies for, just for that, to make it life easier for those frontline teams. And then just looking at returns, returns is becoming an even bigger problem, I think now than it was at the beginning of the year. And I see more technology being thrown at how to solve returns, not in terms of what do you do when somebody wants to return something, but what can you do preventively to make it so that people don't need to buy three versions of the same thing to see which one's going to be the right one and return the other two. Now there's ways that AI machine learning can help with that analysis. And I think we're seeing solutions that do that. I've seen more retailers implement those and they're seeing tangible changes. We're seeing reductions of returns and double digit percentages, which is is obviously going to be meaningful to their sales numbers. You know, think sustainability has just continued down a march. I think more and more news coming out where people start to question some brands as to, are they really engaging in those sustainability practices they've been talking about? Or are they doing one thing in with their right hand, but the left hand's doing something else. It kind of works against that sustainability. So th- to me, that says that people are paying more attention to sustainability and it's starting to matter more, which I see as a positive. And, and again, I think this is one where without technology, no, none of the brands are going to be able to solve this in a, in a meaningful enough way that's going to accomplish a dual purpose goal, which is to demonstrate to their customers that they are engaging in sustainable practices, but at the same time, not do it in, in a manner that's going to make their costs skyrocket and make them unprofitable. Yeah, so I think that that's still happening. So I think that's on a good, good march. Predictive analytics. I mean, I, I'm always still surprised when you see retailers show you that, oh, they're still doing their forecasting on a spreadsheet in Excel versus using something more, you know, more appropriately, let's say size for, for their business that allows them to, to leverage AI in a better way. And I mean, yes, during the pandemic, all these systems tended to, to create more problems and solutions because nobody, let's face it, could have the right model that was going to predict what was going to be a shortage and, and factor in the supply chain challenges and all that. But now, now those models are starting to get worked in. And now some of the companies I've been working with are finding that 
The real reason those solutions led them down the wrong path is because the people that were reading the results were taking different actions than they probably should have been. So it was less the technology as it was the human intervention that didn't want to accept what the technology was saying because they felt that, you know, that was going to be a different result. So I, I think that's all working itself out. In some ways, I think this is one of the most exciting technology areas in retail because it has the potential to have so much change, even if it's more behind the scenes and most consumers don't see this. It's not obvious to you if you walk into a retailer store, but there's so much of this behind the scenes that has to happen to make the business work. I just think it's nowhere to go but up. Agreed. I'm going to just add a point on there just to kind of leave our listeners with something to think about. We've been measuring the wholesale business for like 100 years. This is really the very beginning of taking direct-to-consumer analytics as we grow these business models out and selling direct-to-the-consumer. There is so much data, so more data than we've ever had. And so we're going to be able to get so a, an amount of knowledge from this over the next like three years that we've never seen or understood about our brand or sales. And I think it's, I, I agree, Ricardo, it's super exciting. I mean, you can just geek out on this for- Oh, like, oh yeah. There's, we're going to already keeping those data scientists employed for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely geek out. Yeah. Yes, I definitely geek out on all that, you know, coming from that merchant and product creation space. The challenge I find is that we have all this data and we always have so, had so much data from loyalty programs and even clienteling, but are we really using it to drive, you know, yeah. product decisions, assortment decisions? So it will be very interesting to see, you know, the next three years. I think we should come back to this one in three years. And let's see where we are. Let's talk about yeah, I think, yeah, I think you can safely put job. this one on every top 10 list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, a lot. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about rapid delivery. Yeah. Rapid delivery. Yeah, Goodness gracious. Does anyone here still have access to two-hour delivery from any company? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in Canada, so you like... You, I know. You I don't do. get to shop, period. I know. Come on. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting better. We're getting better up here, I swear. <laughs> Maybe not two hours, but definitely we're getting I better. Feel, yeah, I mean, rapid delivery gets a rapid shakeout. I mean, too many popped up during the pandemic. It was an incredible opportunity to force, like for force adoption for consumers to stop buying things online that they, they never even thought was possible. The amount of grocery online. I mean, without the pandemic, would you ever think like rural areas are getting, we're getting, you know, two to same day delivery. But we asked in the beginning of the year, is this really sustainable? And I think the, the market has decided that it's not cost effective and we'll continue to see a lot of acquisitions and consolidation M&A potential here with like micro fulfillment and last mile delivery, very hot space. A major is going to win, but there's been a lot of adjustments here, especially this year with even Uber Eats. They're not, it's incredible how long it takes. Amazon canceled their two-hour delivery in metropolitan areas in a lot of them. The grocery delivery services had ceased to exist in a lot of, you know, non-chain grocery stores that was that were leveraging it. I think we're going to have to figure out how you can afford to have last mile. I'm very curious on how consumers feel about having this amazing service and then it going away and how that affects brand loyalty. So I think there's still a lot to watch here. There's a big opportunity, but it's going to take a lot of money. Yeah. It's almost like we haven't really seen who pays for this. Whose PNL is this really impacting? Right. 
right? Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that anybody has the, the model down yet to make yeah. money off of it because it's kind of yeah. this thing where, you know, the, the, the faster you want to deliver it and automatically means the closer you have to stage it to the customer to have a chance of getting it there. I mean, like two hours and we had like the quick commerce brands and 15 minute delivery in cities. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to do that, then you have to have so many different staging locations and fulfillment centers, and you've got to have the best predictive analytics to know exactly what are the items everybody's likely to order that they want in 15 minutes. And, and then you end up hearing all the, the providers say, well, we hope to make this work with larger basket sizes, but okay, you don't really want a big order because then if you're trying to deliver it in 15 minutes, it takes you too many minutes to pick and pack the order to get, let alone to get it to someone if it's more than a handful of items. So that means, okay, if you can't get your volume based on basket size, you've got to have it on number of orders. Okay. But then you mean more labor, right? Or, or more automation. And either one of those has a cost implication. So you still need to, uh, work that out. So I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it's sustainable. And then at the end of the day, I think Casey, you asked the right question. What do consumers really need to have delivered in less than two hours? Right. Like my biggest. <laughs> Often enough to my, make a business out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling, I'm, I'm probably oversharing here, but like the amount of times I ordered a chocolate donut from Dunkin', Dunkin Donuts around like 11 to 1 a.m. in the morning from Uber Eats during the pandemic is ridiculous, but it cost me literally nothing. Now, if I wanted to order that same donut for just to hit a craving at like midnight, it would cost me like $32. Like there are so many fees attached to that now that I'm like, yeah, I don't need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you really need it delivered right now? Is it really worth it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's those impulses versus primary way of going grocery shopping. So I think that there's the volume has has definitely adjusted the purpose of what people are buying, the basket size, and then people are out and about and they, it's much easier to swing by the grocery store on your way home. Exactly. So that just takes your volume away from your pricing. Yeah. And speaking of pricing and volume, I'm not sure if this is a segue, but Ricardo, we're we're almost done. We're at number nine, low code revolution. Tell us more. Yeah. So I, I kind of hang my head on this one as the hidden secret that lets retailers figure out how to do things that used to take them six months and do it in six weeks, because you can't wait for an army of your in-house developers to come up with a brand new system for you for any task like you used to pre-pandemic. Now you need things done right away and you want to build into the schedule how often you're going to iterate on that solution to make it better and better. And if there's any technology that makes that doable, it's everything around low code technologies where you're visually building applications, creating reports and dashboards to keep everybody informed. If I just go by what I hear from my Microsoft colleagues who are uh, doing these deployments with customers, it's like every single uh, opportunity they have involves some kind of low code technology aspect. Most of the partners that I work with all have some sort of an implementation in their solution that lets uh, a retailer customize something via a visual kind of development platform. So I'm beginning to feel like there isn't any technology that's going to be put in front of a retailer that doesn't have a low code design component to it just to make life easier for the retailer and to gain adoption. Casey, number 10. This is our last one, everyone. Web3, Metaverse, <laughs> Crypto, NFTs. I don't think you know anything about this space, right? <laughs> you actually teach me a lot. I'll tell you that. Anybody? <laughs> like, really? Does anybody? I mean, I think I, I've every conversation I've ever been on is like, well, I'm not an expert. I'm like, come on, none of us are. Like, we're all learning together. Prepare for some whiplash. Um, it's getting interesting. And Web3 is here to stay. It's not... It's not just one thing. We've got an incredibly passionate creator community and consumers are curious and 
we're getting a pretty rapid adoption rate and, and adding a lot of payment opportunities for commerce and making this bridge. Commerce is going to drive this space to turn it into something that's here to last. Uh, biggest challenges are going to be around data interoperability. Retail is famous for silos and Web3 developers are, are staying aligned with that methodology. So hopefully, hopefully we can all break that down. And a lot of companies, thousands of companies have come together to create standards for Web3 from file sizes to ethics. So I think that that's really exciting. I've never seen companies come together quite like this so fast in a market to say, we want this to stay. We need to work together. Let's not compete. So that's pretty interesting. And brands are experimenting. Brands that typically do not experiment, period, are experimenting. And they are supporting very large global initiatives to accept crypto at their stores, to launch NFTs and collaborate with content creators or artists that are not in-house, which is another really great opportunity that's just rare. So I want to see a lot more brands build community and really see what they can turn this space into. It's not going anywhere. I can say that. It's definitely not going anywhere. I think it could make all of our predictions. In some way, there's probably some piece that could be innovated by using some piece of Web3 and make our lives a little bit easier and a little bit more enjoyable. You know, from the consumer to the brand, there's an opportunity here. But we're, the brands are going to have to experiment to figure out what piece is going to be the way that they roll out. So I'm excited about the space. Take it slow. I'm excited too. I was actually in the, the Soho Ferragamo store a couple of weeks ago, and I saw the, the NFT station. I guess. And as a consumer, I was definitely fascinated. So I'm excited to, to see more more of what happens in that space. Well, I'm sure that everyone listening is wondering how the score turned out. So now as a, an impartial judge and to friends to you both, you know, I will say that I would say you guys are both pretty spot on. Do you think that there is, there's anything that you should have predicted that should have been on this list? I think that's like, that's an interesting question to ask you both. That's a tough one. And if I were to pick anything, I would say the one thing we didn't we came close to it writing in Casey's brick and mortar expansion. But I don't know that we really talked about whether it was going to be sort of this pendulum swing between online commerce growth versus physical stores and just how much people were going to rush back to stores this year and, and want to enjoy that physical shopping experience and, and what that implication was towards the trends of the last two years where our e-commerce was just going to take over everything, which isn't to say that it's still you know moving ahead. It's not like it's going to contract. It's going to keep growing just that the pace is back to normal. So maybe that's one that we didn't talk about that we, we could have gone a step further maybe in, in that one prediction, but that's the one that comes to my mind. Yeah. I mean, coming at, we spoke about it maybe a couple times throughout this entire season, knowing that when that pendulum swings, it's going to come with a recession and we didn't really dive in. I think we could have used an entire episode just to talk about the timing, the impacts of all of this with some type of recession coming into play because it was obvious the timing wasn't. Yeah, and so yeah. in aligning with the holiday season or the kickoff of the new year, you know, there's a lot of companies are expecting to hit their numbers this year because of holiday. So I think we could have definitely dived into a little bit more of the consumer behavior coming out of the pandemic Yeah, to say right. which one of these things is going to be what a retailer is going to need to make it through that recession. 
Yeah, and closely related to that, we didn't predict the wonky supply chain problems that have been continuous still. right throughout this year still, right? I don't think we would have, <laughs> back at the when we recorded that episode, would have predicted that, oh yeah, Target and Walmart are not going to figure out how to get their inventory turned straightened out and they're going to end up stuck with too much product, right? We like, never would have predicted do, that one. Well, right? like, why are we still having, why are we still having issues? Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, I'll say that it's definitely a merchandising strategy issue, but you know, nobody asked me. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about some highlights from season one. So Ricardo, which was your favorite clubhouse discussion? I love these, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, we really <laughs> enjoy these too. I, I have to say, I think my favorite one was the one we did with Andy Lodato, CEO of the Vitamin Shop from his book, Fostering Innovation and, and How to Build That Culture of Innovation in Your IT Shop. I think that one was my favorite one just because it was such a wide variety of topics that we cover. I mean, we asked Andy about his project management style. We talked about how that impacts the corporate culture. There were some pretty clever tidbits in there that he talked about in terms of how to, how to consider how you hire people to align to that culture of innovation. He talked about his hierarchy of IT needs and how you can get to earn the privilege to innovate, which I think was really clever. And then one of my favorite, if I'm going to pick catchphrases to come out of the season, that one had one of my favorites, which was be a diode that Andy had. If you remember that one, where he said, as the team manager, if you're a diode, you take all the negative things that come to the team, those stop with you as the team leader and you don't pass those on. But when you get all the good comments, you don't keep those, you pass those on to your team so they can all benefit from the from the praise. That one, there should be a t-shirt for that one. I love it. Yeah, I actually took a lot of quotes from Andy. I love his perspective of project management and how to get tech in and actually deployed rather than running so many projects simultaneously that almost nothing gets done in three years. I really haven't quoted anybody as much as I've quoted Andy from these podcasts. He is a gem. So everybody rewind, go back to that episode. Go back and, and listen to that. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. I love that episode too. Casey, I have a question for you. Who was your most memorable guest speaker and who surprised you the most? It's a double whammy question. Ron Thurston. And it's for both of them. There's probably no coincidence. He's been He's been in what more than more, no less than three, uh, three of our episodes. We kicked off with Ron. And, and once you hear Ron advocate for the frontline store teams, you just can't help but gain a better understanding of the people working in those roles and also feel motivated to want to improve the work environment for these associates. I knew of him. I had met him on Zoom, but that conversation, that podcast I just completely fell in love with him and I had no idea he had so much passion for these people until we started talking and like we didn't stop talking. It was season one, episode one, season one, episode two. It would just continue to bring in Ron that he has this platform, like his voice needed to be out there and share his stories. He's an amazing human. So definitely made it to my most memorable I love Ron too. I love watching where he's going to be next on his Airstream tour. That is, it's super cool. And now I want an Airstream, obviously. I know that. Yes. We all want that. Exactly. I hope it turns into a documentary. I really want to watch <laughs> I love it. What about you, Ricardo? Which guest would you say did you learn the most from? So I have sort of an interesting way to think of, of that one. So as far as where did I learn the most from? I think it was on the episode that we call the Sea of Academia. We actually had a couple guests there and, and 
big, big shocker. Ron was one of those guests on that episode too. <laughs> but we also had Gotham Red K. Pat, who's the director of the Center for Retail Transformation at George Mason University. And I, I think that was the one where I learned the most from because it had a very different view that I think all of us that talk about retail all the time, we don't often talk about the educational aspect of it and how that plays a role in creating the next generation of retail leaders. And I think in that episode, I learned a lot about different perspectives on how to look at that. You know, the thing that sticks in my mind in that one is when Gotham said at the beginning of one of his classes in the semester, he asked his students, how many of you work in retail right now? It was something like a big percentage of his class raised their hand and said, yeah, they work in retail. And then he asked them, well, how many of you think you want to pursue a career in retail? And all the hands went down. None of them wanted to. But then by the end of his class, when he brought in a series of guest speakers to talk about different career journeys in retail and different areas that you can work in in the industry, when he asked the question again at the end, at least half those hands came back up. People finally realized, oh, there really is something interesting. It's not just what they thought was a harsh experience, I guess, working in those stores. And, and to me, it kind of ties together what Casey was just saying about the episodes we did with Ron and advocating for those frontline store teams. And this kind of gives a different spin to it. So I came away learning a lot from that one and how there's an opportunity to influence those future generation of retail leaders through those educational programs and through those university programs that they're going through to get them to come up with a different new perspective on the industry, which I think oftentimes people in retail get stuck in their ways and they're just used to doing things a certain way. And you need that new, new set of ideas to, to change things up. Yeah, I mean, one in six people on the planet work in retail in some capacity. And for there not to be a way for you to go to school or go to college or university or specialize in retail or commerce, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. The amount of education that and curriculums that are popping up now at major universities to focus on digital transformation and retail is so hopeful, I feel, that this is actually going to be... I'm going to feel like it's really about being respected as a career and getting those good salaries, being able to attract top tier talent. We have big problems to solve. And it's nice to see the universities turn this into an actual specialty. I totally agree. And it's interesting because I also, I went to fashion school and got my degree in fashion. And it's so interesting to see how the programs have evolved to include, you know, things mm. like data scientists or material scientists or textile innovation. So I love that episode too. Now tell us, do you have any special plans for season two? What can we look forward to? We'll have some surprises. We've been talking to some folks about a couple of unique segments we may try and do in season two. I'll try not to give away too much, but there'll be some people who might be familiar to listeners from season one who may come back and some who, who will be new to come and give us kind of like a, I'll call it a data angle to our conversations where we'll have one of these guests come in on a segment and It'll be related to the topic. They might have an interesting data point or a research statistic that has come up. And we'll spend a couple of minutes talking about how that has an impact on the topic that week. Uh, so I think that, that'll kind of mix things up a bit. It's almost kind of, if you think of an ask me anything type of a scenario, except it'll focus around a specific data theme, I think. So that should be a, a clever one. And we'll have a new theme. You know, we, some folks maybe didn't realize we had a theme to the episodes that we set for season one, <laughs> there was a structure to it. We were focusing in on digital transformation and innovation and, and people, which I think was the unique spin that we brought to those other two areas. So we'll have a new theme, which we're not going to spoil for season two, but we'll, we'll definitely have a trailer coming out soon to give everybody an idea of what we're thinking for season two and what to expect. 
Casey, any last thoughts? Yeah, our training wheels are off. You know, this started as a, I miss talking to everybody and we all kind of jumped in a room in Clubhouse and it was super cool. I don't think anybody's logged into Clubhouse for several months. So pretty exciting that, you know, this is season two is going to be fresh, you know, fully planned on purpose in real time. And it's going to be interesting to see how we started to really like where we are now and bringing some incredible guests that didn't have a clubhouse invitation at the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a prerequisite for season one. I know. There is that, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were hard to come by. They were hard to come. Yeah, for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, we had some really great guests that yeah. didn't have an iOS. They weren't iOS. They were Android. <laughs> they weren't allowed to like, yeah. there was no app for them. They right. couldn't come in. It took so a while for them. Yeah. Might see some yeah. more Android users in season two. Yeah. So listeners can expect more of those, uh, like the Retail Transformers series that we kicked off with, with April and Sabra. We'll, we'll do more of those in season two with, with some unique guests. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you both for having me. Let me flip the script on you. Oh yeah, Let's you should. You I'd love that. But thank you so much for having me and allowing me to put put you guys in the hot seat because, you know, I love that. And I can't wait to do this again. Yeah, I can't wait to have you come back on the show with us, Lisa. I will, I will talk about all things merchandising and the retail silos. We need to break those down. Oh, yeah. Break those silos. That's right. Break those silos. They're going to crash. Yep. It will happen. That's right. That's right. So, Casey, I think that means we're ready to wrap this one. It's a full wrap. Goodbye to season one. And season two awaits. If you enjoy our show, please consider giving us that special five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a minute. Want to know more about what we talked about today? Take a look at the show notes for handy links and more deets. I'm your co-host, Casey Golden. And if you'd like to learn more about us, follow us on Twitter at KCC Golden and Ricardo underscore Belmar, or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure and follow the show on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Retail Razor and on our YouTube channel for videos of each episode and some bonus content. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is the Retail Razor Show.